Bibi Fahodie, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Hello, this is the African Liberation Media. I'm here with brothers Makaru and Amos. We typically use the word Abibi Fahodie, African liberation. It is incumbent upon us to keep this concept alive for future generations. We are here once again to engage the public in the critical issues. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Brother Jamil Abdullah El Amin, AKA H. Rap Brown. I reminded of the fact that he told LBJ, he referred to him as Lynchum Johnson and Lightning Bug Johnson, that uh, you know he wasn't concerned that blacks in close proximity to the White House were keeping his daughters awake. He was concerned with the brutality being meted out against black people. You know, to use one of his phrases from many years ago, Hubert Humphrey, a so-called liberal, was madder in the words of Jamil Abdullah El Amin, H. Rap Brown at that time, he was madder than a pimp with dog S on his shoes. <laughs> he said, when I was in the eighth or ninth grade, that individuals, not positions, merit respect. One of the first things I told baby girl when she came out of the room, her first words were not goo goo gaga dad dad mama. My first words will be stand on the eve of a black revolution. All right. And of course, I caught hell <laughs> from my paternal side of the family and her maternal side of the family. But those were the first words that she uttered. I got to go on and talk about this, brother, if you don't mind. Bear with me, man, because of uh, his significance in my life was comparable to that of Muhammad Ali's at a time when I was searching for an identity. And my parents saw how fixated I was whenever he came on the Huntley Brinkley show. You know, Russell really likes him. You know, mother would get on the phone and talk about my affinity for the words of Jamil Abdul El Amin, I actually wanted to look like the brother. He and Muhammad Ali, a.k.a. Cassius Clay, was who I patterned myself after as an 11-year-old. They were my first models that I tried to emulate. And uh, at some point in time, hopefully we can get his son to talk with us. Father, of course, is in greater confinement one of the better known political prisoners as is Mumia Abu Jamal. My man, six foot five, rap brown out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Southern High School, Southern University, brother couldn't take it, man. He just, go ahead, go ahead, gentlemen. Macaroo, you were with Snick back in the day. You have some insights, uh, almost, Take it where you want to take it. <clears throat> well, actually, I never was with SNCC. I, but the reason I wanted to go to school in Atlanta was because SNCC's headquarters were there. Okay. But by the time I got there, SNCC uh, was on life support. Uh, the people who would actually become uh, two of my Masharis in the Kiswahili language, Mashari means advisor or counselor, or for me, it was teacher. Okay. Baba Mukasa Dada, then known as Willie Ricks, and Dr. Cleve Sellers, the former president of Voorhees University. Um, so, yeah, I went there. SNCC inspired me to go to school in Atlanta. That's how much of a of an impact uh, Kwame Ture, then known as Stokely Carmichael, had on me because as a young person growing up, uh, I didn't have an activist family 
but I had a family that was attuned to what was going on in the country and in the world. My, uh, my family took, uh, at that time, uh, a lot of cities had two newspapers, the morning news and the afternoon, afternoon news. And they took the uh, Charlotte Observer in the morning and the Charlotte News, which was the afternoon paper. And so they stayed abreast of events. So as events were unfolding in the country, uh, I don't remember, what I remember from the late, from the, from the 50s, the only thing I really remember is the uh, desegregation of uh, Central High School in Little Rock. I just, I just remember that being, uh, you know, on the news every night. My family, when they came in, unless it was during the, the spring or the summer when my dad would come in from work and go to work in his garden, uh, my family, uh, would watch the news uh, 15 minutes at that time of local news and 15 minutes of national news. And so we would watch the news and the, and the thing that I remember watching was uh, the desegregation of Little Rock High School. And I, I don't remember any, anything else uh, other than uh, the Gillette Saturday, uh, Friday night fights because my grandmother was in love with Sugar Ray Robinson. Yes, sir. He expected him to be on fighting every 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 Friday night for some reason. I don't and know he why. Was. <laughs> it <laughs> seems like it. Hey, bro, if if I may, <laughs> you know, and I'm mimicking my older uncles. They say Sugar Ray would go to Harlem and spend ten grand in a night and had to reschedule a fight. You know, after ha even in those instances where he had not fully recovered from his previous fight. Yeah, he he did he did fight a lot, man. Uh, but yeah, she expected him to be on, and uh, so I mean, I don't remember much. Um, I I only remember my my uh, uh, family talking about Jackie Robinson. I I just remember them talking about him. Uh, I remember um, I remember the name Emmett Till, but but I think the first time my mother actually. Uh, grabbed a hold of me and told me don't ever look at a white woman mm. was uh, when uh, Mac Charles Parker was lynched. I'm sure they discussed Emmett Till. I probably heard the name, but for some reason, the Mac Charles Parker thing was like uh, something that, that just grabbed her and said, oh, you know. Now, uh, she was at, at one time my mother, a member of the NAACP, and I do remember her. Uh, this must have been sometime in the late 50s, early 60s. I can't remember when exactly, but I do remember her talking about Robert Williams and Klan infested Monroe, North Carolina. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that were being discussed in our home. As a matter of fact, my mother heard Robert Williams speak. Wow. At, uh, at what was then called the Park Center here in Charlotte, now known as the Grady Cole Center. The NAACP had a rally, and it was before Robert Williams got kicked out of the NAACP. My mother was at a rally, and she heard Robert Williams speak. Now, I don't know exactly when she mentioned this to me. It might have been at some point after my activism. I can't remember. But she said, I remember Robert Williams speaking about Klan infested Monroe, North Carolina. So those were the kinds of things that were that were taking place. So when uh, having watched, uh, you know, the 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 uh, the events in Birmingham, the uh, the barbarism of the white supremacists, Eugene Bull Connor, George. Curly Wallace and that that crowd of barbarians in Alabama, uh, the the bombing of the church, which sent shockwaves through every every black community in the country, particularly since black people were so deep into Christianity. Why didn't God save those children in the church? I'm asking all kinds of questions, man. You look. What y'all believe in doesn't make any sense. I mean, I mean, I was actually challenging this from the point that they told me to start 
started, you know, they told me I needed to go to Sunday school. And I was seeing all these things taking place. And so I'm asking questions, you know, what, you know, how do you explain this? What did we do? And then they dropped the Hermetic curse on me. Oh God. And I said, well, what is that? And they, 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 tried, they gave, they gave it to me best as they knew from the, uh, story in Genesis, obviously none of us knew about the Talmud or anything, you know, what was actually being said by, by the Jews or the Hebrews at that time regarding that. And I'm saying, so you saying that a dude got drunk, I'm not, you know, <laughs> okay, this is, I'm, I'm speaking and using the day's vernacular, obviously. I'm saying you're an old man got drunk and was laying around with no clothes on and his son looked at him and laughed and that's why we're in this condition. I said, well, you know, uh, my parents did drink. I've seen both of them inebriated, uh, but I wouldn't laugh at my dad if he was laying around drunk, but still, if I did, I mean, is that the reason why four girls got blown up in a church in Birmingham? Come on, y'all. What y'all telling me makes no sense at all. So I, during this whole period of time, you know, I'm maybe 13, somewhere in this neighborhood, 14, and all of a sudden here comes this brother with shades on talking Come about on. black power. I say, oh my God, finally, 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 here is something I can identify with. I didn't know anything about Malcolm X. Only thing I remember about, the, about that was uh, there was a lady, and I won't call her name, but there was a lady that worked with my mother. They worked at a linen, a linen supply company. And this lady joined the Nation of Islam and she changed the last name to X. And they said she was crazy. They started calling her crazy, crazy X and whatnot. So I didn't know anything about that. Uh, you know, the nation of Malcolm X at, at, at that point. But uh, I immediately identified, I mean, the, the two, maybe the minute or 30 seconds or whatever amount of time, you know, Stokely Carmichael was on CBS, NBC, that's what we normally watched, either Cronkite or Huntley and Brinkley. And I was glued to the set, man, glued to the set. The Panthers, when they came out, were far away. But I do remember uh, this first image of Huey sitting in the uh, the chair, the, 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 the straw chair, or what, there's a name for those chairs, I can't think of it now, but anyway, Snick inspired me to want to go to school in the ATL. Snick was dead at the time. So we had to find some other organizations and that's actually how I got onto the quote unquote, uh, the, the, the Pan-African orientation uh, from there. So that's just, just part of the history. Obviously H. Uh, Rap Brown followed uh, Stokely as the chairman and then things just uh, Hoover just seemed to go berserk as a result. I think if anything drove J. Edgar by day, Mary by night, Hoover berserk, it was Jamil Abdullah El Amin, H. Rap Brown. I think he drove J. Edgar Hoover absolutely berserk. He drove him crazy. And I mean, even more so, even more so than, than Stokely, you know, because I mean, even though Stokely was saying, First time I heard Stokely speak, I was a student in high school. He came to UNC Charlotte. I lobbied the principal to uh, to go on a field trip, and the principal said, "Why do you want to go? Why do you want to do this?" And I said, "Well, y'all got us going to see uh, Beowulf and uh, the Sound of Music and uh, listening to uh, Bach and Beethoven. Why can't we have?" I didn't know the word diversity. I didn't know it, but I, I guess that was the point I was making. And Dr. Durant, Spencer E. Durant, a brilliant man, uh, approved the field trip. And so we went at the, at the UNC, we in high school, West Charlotte High School. I'm sitting on the front row. And this, uh, at this time, uh, Stokely was, had been, uh, this was during this brief period of time when he was the honorary prime minister of the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party made a huge mistake by not absorbing uh, Foreman, Brown, and Carmichael into their leadership and learning from their experience. A critical error on the part of the party at that time for not taking advantage 
of that uh, because they could have bought in Baba Mikasa and all these other people with mass experience in organizing, which they didn't have, uh, even though they had good intentions. But anyway, he was serving as the prime minister. And so we go out to uh, UNC, I'm sitting on the front row. My hero is right in front of me. And uh, he says, uh, we are for revolutionary violence. You know, he, could, he spoke in that, that uh, Caribbean accent. We are for revolutionary violence. And I'm like, wow. Uh, but, but yeah, I think uh, you, you were talking about Jamil Abdullah El Amin, H. Rab Brown. I, I, I think he, more than anyone, <laughs> what, what did they say when, when uh when rap came to town, uh, 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 what was it? Uh, matches and and cigarette lighters were contraband, and none were none were were on sale. <laughs> I mean, even even though the man the man actually started, he started no riots, but they actually tried to assassinate him in Cambridge, Maryland. Uh, in I think nineteen sixty seven, he was up there with Gloria Richardson. Oh yeah. Gloria Richardson Dandridge, a heroic sister, uh, just a just a magnificent sister uh, in Cambridge, Maryland, and uh, he got shot. He was uh, they tried to kill him. He was shot. Actually, uh, the, the some of the pellets from the shotgun hit him in the forehead. Uh, but uh, yeah, we do hope to get Brother Kyrie on. Um, we tried to reach out to him and reach him, and uh, but we were not able to make the connection. I do believe we will we'll make the connection and get him on. So, hey man, that's an, that's it. <laughs> okay, for starters, uh, brother uh, Amos. Yes, sir. Uh, you would appreciate the fact that uh, long before I met um, Naeem Akbar um, over at FAMU, Jamil has spoken against uh, religious imagery. You know, in depictions of uh, God in European form, and the the psychological damaging effect it had. This was long before Naeem Akbar, uh, where Jamil spoke against this, and uh, you know, as a, well, I guess as an adult, you know, I became interested in um, some of the forces that shaped his ideology. That was one of many. Let, let me let me just say this because this you know since we since we you know recording this for posterity you know this is history. Um, Naeem Agbar, then known as Dr. Luther Weems, came to Morehouse in the uh, fall of 1970 and started teaching a class called Black Psychology. Come on. So this this was before he became Naeem Agbar. And uh, I was actually in his first black psychology class uh, at Morehouse. And uh, I don't know if you ever had a chance to meet Dr. Rayford Brown. No, I have not. Yeah, one of my uh, classmates from West Charlotte who um, got a scholarship, went to the University of Michigan and then uh, spent most of his career teaching at uh, at at FAMU, but Agba was at Florida State, right? That is correct. Yeah, I, I guess I don't know how he wound his way down there, but I just want to let you know that I was actually in his first black psychology class at Morehouse. Ashe. Yes. All right, go ahead, brother. Well, I know we wanted to touch on some of the updates to the Ahmad Aubrey case down in Georgia. Some of the things that were put out to the public this week. And one of those things was different videos that were displayed of not only Ahmad going into the house that the people in that community say he went into, but also other people, white people and others who also frequently went into that house that was under construction. And one of the things that really disturbed me this week was a, a few posts that I saw from people like Sean King and others making a statement that uh, do these, you know, white people look like criminals. And what disturbed me about that statement is that we've come too far to try to convince white people of our righteousness as a people. 
And I feel like when we get in these situations, we always lean on the fact that we are still fighting for some type of equality in the eyes of white people in this country. It always seems as though black people, whenever these situations happen, it seems as though we tend to beg white people for their empathy. And that's one of the things we really have to move ourselves away from. And we got to become more proactive with our own life and liberation. But it's common sense that no white person is going to look at another white person as a criminal. (laughs) So it's no need for you to point that out or attempt to beg for white people's empathy in the case of Ahmad. Exactly. I think that what we should be focusing on is trying to put the pressure on the prosecutor to charge the McMichaels with the proper charges so that his family can get some type of justice. If that justice does not happen, then we need to have some different discussions about what we want to do or what needs to be done. Right. But from what I'm seeing, all of the updates that I'm seeing in regards to this case, it seems to me, I know last week I said that Travis McMichael will more than likely get some type of penalty and Gregory Gregory would probably get off. Looking at the circumstances, you got the 73% white county. So you know the jurors are going to be mostly white. You have these rules around that are kind of a gray area around the citizen's arrest law in Georgia. You have some codes that's, or you have a code that says that you can only follow someone if you see them committing a felony. But then you have other attorneys and judges who are making statements that say that this also applies to misdemeanors, which when you go inside of a, a house under construction like Ahmad did, that would be considered a misdemeanor. The question would be, did Travis and Gregory McMichael see him themselves going to this property on that day? Or did someone else call them and alert them to his presence on the property? And then they just decided to squad up or posse up and follow him. Let, so that- let me let me tell you what I think on that, uh, Brother Amos. Um So I've seen several interviews with Larry English and his attorney, uh, Mrs. Elizabeth uh, Grady, who seems to be a very progressive, uh, at least she sounds like William Kunstler. I'm not going to say that she actually is in that mode, but she certainly, the statement she made sounded like something that Kunstler might say, or Charles Gary, uh, who was the uh, attorney for the Black Panther Party. Uh, when English English set up motion detector uh, and motion detector video in inside the house, and he had a he gave it to one of the residents of that neighborhood, Satilla Shores, a guy by the name of Diego Perez. I don't know why this guy is not getting more scrutiny. I think he should be. So well, what happened is uh, when the motion detector went off, it would send a, um, a message to uh, Larry English's phone. Larry English would call Diego Perez. And then Perez would arm himself and go up to the house. This is according to several media accounts. And I've been reading mostly local media like First Coast News, you know, news from the area where this uh, has taken place, uh, you know, the Jacksonville area, the Georgia coastal area. Um, So at some point, at some point, it appears that Diego Perez shared some of those videos with uh, the Mike Michaels because uh, the younger Mike, Sean is the younger, Travis is the um, Travis. Travis is, the, is yeah. Tra- Travis is the younger. Travis apparently he he shared shared them with 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 the Mac Michaels, 
And on one of those events on uh, February the 11th, when they uh, there was a picture that of a of a black male in the home, uh, Travis was there first before Perez got there, and Travis was the one who who called the police and said that there was a black male in the house, and when he approached him. He reached into his waistband. Of course, waistband is the code word for police to kill black males. Twelve-year-old Tamir Rice, unarmed, reached into his waistband for what? Nothing. And he was killed within less than two seconds. Michael Brown Jr., unarmed. According to uh, Darren, what was that? What is his name? Darren, whatever his name was. Wilson. He, Wilson. He claimed that Michael Brown Jr. was reaching into his waist. So this is the code word: waistband, blackmail, shoot. That's what it. Waistband, blackmail, shoot. Exonerate. Those are the steps. So. Um, but I guess I guess. Well, the question that, that I'm asking here is that incident they say happened back on February 11th. Right. So on the day that they actually shot Ahmad, did Perez make a call to Travis and Gregory McMichael? This, this is the question. See, uh, Chris Como had Larry English and... English's attorney on his show this week. He, this was just poor journalism. You got these people on there. It was a 10-minute interview, which is a long time for those types of shows. He did not ask this man. He piddled around with all kinds of BS questions. He did not ask this man, how did the McMichaels make the statement that, that, Ahmaud Aubrey was the same person that had been seen in other videos. The question that should have been asked was, who had access to your videos? And Larry English would have said Diego Perez. So now let's get Diego Perez. Diego Perez, did you call the McMichaels and tell them that someone was in the home? So what what so what you're saying, the question that you're asking, Ahmad, I mean almost is a is a very valid question because. It's, it's in a question that any attorney will want to know. Did you all see this or, or were you all told this? As it, was there a call made from Diego Perez to you saying there was a black male in the home? Right, because if that, that because if that's the case, if they if they if they got a call instead of witnessing it themselves, then like you said on two previous programs, the felony stalking charge would apply because they did not actually witness the crime, so they wouldn't be able to use the citizen's arrest law. Exactly. That's a critical piece of information. And I don't know why. I, I'm, it's boggling my mind. Nobody has, brought, has, has, has questioned this Diego Perez. I mean, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Some people have told me I think like a lawyer, but I have... I'm, but th these are... To me, this is just... This is... Elementary law one on one. And it how seems, did, how, go ahead, go ahead, brother. Go ahead. And it also seems as though, with the stand your ground laws in the state, it seems as though they would more than likely get off for that shooting. Uh, because when you look at the video, when Travis gets out of the truck as uh, Ahmad is running towards the truck and he tries to go around the, the right side of the truck. He has a shotgun in his hand and the shotgun is pointed down to the ground. And then there's an altercation that takes place between both of them and then Travis shoots the shotgun. So, of course, you know, we as African people know common sense who the aggressor is. We know that Travis is the aggressor. He has the gun. He's coming for Ahmad. But under the, the American white European law, they have these laws set up that are not geared towards 
protecting black people. We know that. The same way they told you at one point legally that you could be a slave is the same way that they could say legally you can get shot and somebody can claim that they fear for their life and they stood their ground. So with those laws being in place, it's easy to me to see that a white jury would easily look at that video and once they get into the deliberation room and they have to provide a judgment on a particular sentence based on the law, it's going to be hard to get 12 jurors who can be predominantly white to all fully agree that they're guilty of manslaughter or murder or whatever the charge is for killing Ahmad. Do we know anything about the federal prosecutor? Well, there is no federal prosecutor right now. I mean, the uh, uh, several people have asked uh, Barr, the attorney general, to uh, for the Justice Department to investigate, but he hasn't done anything regarding that at this at this moment. I mean, there is a the case has been assigned to the prosecutor from Cobb County, the county which is in the vicinity of uh, of, of Atlanta. Sister. A sister, uh, yes, a, a black woman uh, by the name of Joyette Holmes, who's from Valdosta. Uh, she should be somewhat familiar with the uh, culture of the area, but I mean, I don't know the coastal area. Um, I, I've been meaning to I've been meaning to go on to um, the lynching website. There's supposedly been there were several lynchings in the coastal coastal Georgia area uh, throughout history. So, and the and the other thing is, um, I, I to me I think optics matter. I mean, you know, look, I almost brought this to our attention last week, and then there, there was some research. <laughs> It's almost as if they were listening to almost uh, one of these media outlets went in and did some research into the uh, the Glenn County prosecutor, Jackie Johnson. They, they have she has they have not even prosecuted police who have killed white people. In Glenn County. I mean, this I mean. The culture there, okay, here's another thing that came out this week. Um, the, the, the Brunswick police sent Larry English a text and told him that Greg McMichael, a former police officer, a guy who at one time as a police officer was so lax, he wasn't doing his training, he wasn't doing the basic things he needed to do to keep to, to continue to be a police officer. He was one time stripped of his police powers. And Jackie Johnson was the pe person who went to his uh, defense and kept him on the police force. But there was a Glenn County police officer sent a text to uh, Larry English and told him if he, if he was having trouble with his home, that Greg McMichael was a former officer who lived in the neighborhood he gave him the name, the address, and the phone number of Greg McMichael and said, if you're having any trouble, contact him. Mm. So, you know, this thing is very, I mean, you know, the dynamics here at work uh, just point to a, to a white supremacist type of outcome. Now, if in fact, the point that Amos is making, since there is, there is some disagreement by, from the legal eagles in terms of under what grounds do you have. Now, I, I read the Georgia, the Georgia Code, which said that if a person has committed a felony and they're trying to escape, then you have a right to pursue them and arrest them. But there are, other, there are obviously other interpretations of that. But if they didn't see anything, and this is going to be a critical question, and I'm sure they're going to lie and say they did see him, right? And this is where, you know, you know, and Perez may lie on the stand or he may perjure himself, who knows? But, um, you know, I think the weak link could be this guy, this, this uh, you know, Roddy, uh, the guy that actually filmed the thing. Okay. 
his personality tells me that the, that an aggressive prosecutor and aggressive uh, policing could force him to flip and testify for the state. Well, one of the things that we know police officers do is they get their story straight or their lie straight, as I should say, and they're prepared in a police report. So Gregory McMichael was trained in doing that. Yes. But when you listen to, there, apparently there were, I'm trying to figure out in looking at these dispatcher calls that were made to 911, on one call, you have someone reporting that they saw a man enter into the the construction site. And then on another call, it seems as though Gregory McMichael was standing in his front yard and saw Ahmad running down the street. And then after he hangs up with a dispatcher, he goes into the house and gets his son. And then they get their weapons and they go chasing after him. Now, if if he was on the phone and he saw this person or he saw Ahmad running down the street, that's not that's not a crime. That's not a felony. Exactly. So he wouldn't have the authority to chase him. The first person who made the call would have the authority if you can do if you can do that for a misdemeanor. Like we said, it's some gray area around this law. But there were first responders that actually came out when that call was placed. They came out to the house. You talking about the February 11th call? Uh, the 23rd. Oh, the 23rd. Okay. Yeah. After after the guy, because if you look at the video, it seems like the neighbor across the street, I guess that's his name, Perez. Is that the guy? I'm not sure where Perez lives. In that, it, it seems that Perez is further away. There was somebody across the street uh-huh. that is seen on camera walking over to the house. And at that point, you see Ahmad dart out from the house running in the other direction. Okay. And, and, the, and, the, house, and the house was known to be a water source. Yeah. And then right? um, I mean, after a lot, he leaves. A lot, of, a lot of people went to the house to get like a drink of water or something like that, right? That's, that's true. What, yeah, that, that's what they, one of the they, attorneys said. They, they said that uh, in the, at the back of the house, it was uh, some type of water source or something. But after Ahmad leaves, then you have the first responders come out, and you can also see that on camera too. You know, man, I don't see how they can, uh, you know, really assume reasonable suspicion based on a, an alleged burglary in the quotes when the brother's running down the middle of the street, not ducking in and out of houses and not running in the woods to stash whatever he could have possibly, we know he didn't, stolen. I mean, this gentleman was running down the middle of the street. Well, I mean, you we know, live in America, and one of the rules of war is to understand your enemy and to understand the terrain that you're in. And with that being said, this is a country where people will get arrested. Black people will get arrested right now for wearing a mask, even during this pandemic, which happened, actually happened at a Walmart. There was a black man who got kicked out of the store because the police officer told him to take his mask off. Yeah. It, it, uh, the Charlotte Observer a couple of days ago did an article on a Duke University graduate uh, master's degree, and, and that was precisely his point about the probability of him being assumed to be a criminal. I mean, the assumption is made anyway. You, 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 you're guilty. You just hadn't been caught or apprehended. But that's what the young man was saying. Uh, he gave his assessment of how this mask during uh, this COVID-19 uh, epidemic can backfire based on the fact that so many brothers are wearing masks. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's you know our, our concern was during the uh, showing of the cinema blockbuster Black Panther. My concern was that you know so many kids doing Halloween will wear the Panther outfit and get killed. It's hmm. like I mean, it's like this is how I look at things. It's like having a mentality of saying 
well, that white guy can date that white woman. Not that any of us want to date a white woman. But somebody has a mentality to say, why can't I walk around town with this white woman on my arm? Back in the 60s, well, you know, brothers was getting lynched. Some black men had the mentality where they wanted to have a white woman on their arm and they felt like it was their right living in America to be able to do so. Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, Ella Mean used to talk about, the assumption across the board that what's good for white America is good for black America. Uh, H. Rap Brown used to say racism systematically verifies itself when the slave in his attempt to break free tries to imitate his master. As well said. Now that's Elamine talking. Well said. Right. H. Rap Brown. I heard that. Negroes, <laughs> as an addendum, legitimized two Americas. This is Rap Brown talking. White America and Negro America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was listening to him just this morning with uh, Brother Gil Noble, which Macaroo has also heard, and thus, you know, you kill Malcolm X. And our response when uh, Omar Wally was killed, Brother X, was similar to whites because they had so demonized the brother that uh, our response was uh, tantamount to the white response. We were happy somewhat. I mean, you know, uh, 60 years later, of course, you see brothers with X cap on, but when he was alive, but not only X, Dr. King, Wendy Gail Thompson, you know, across the board, you know, white folks say Joe Biden is good, black folk follow, you know, uh, I mean, there's just numerous analogies we can use to point to our inability to think independently in so many instances uh, to our detriment. You know, I think one, one of the critical things about the, uh, the, what the video show, which the video showed a number of people, you know, uh, trespassing on, onto the property, including a white couple. White children. Yeah, white children. So it 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 appears that they singled this brother out. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if he was singled out because of the previous interaction that the uh, Greg McMichael, the police officer, had with had had with him. Uh, you know, previous uh, a previous case that had occurred. I'm I'm just I'm just wondering. That thought went through my mind too. That thought that thought went through my mind too because if this guy has previously worked this case, in his mind, he's thinking. I'm I'm gonna tell you what the white man said in his mind. He said, "Here goes this damn n word again." Right. Uh-huh. Right. Because running through running through our neighborhood, right? He's got to be up to no good because I already caught him shoplifting. Already got to be up to no good, and so and then if Perez had shared the videos with them, and Larry English said none of the people on the videos that he had seen looked like uh, Ahmad. Of course, you know that's debatable, but one of the things one of the things that if you listen to Greg McMichael's 911 call, and the, and the, not Greg uh, Travis McMichael's 911 call on February the 11th, and see this this is why Diego Perez has to be questioned. How did how did Travis Travis McMichael claims he was riding by the house and saw a black man standing in the yard? Just coincidentally, are we sure he didn't get a phone call from Diego Perez? Uh, Travis is supposed to live like two houses down from from the uh, the house that's under construction, and so he made a call. And so when the when the nine one one operator was asking Travis McMichael for a description of the person, he said it was a black male about six foot, and he said I really couldn't see him that good. And he said he has short hair, short hair. Now that was his description of the person on February the eleventh. Now we've seen the pictures on 
of uh, Travis McMichael. I mean, Travis, uh, I mean, damn, Ahmaud Aubrey on, on February 23rd. We don't grow that much hair in two weeks. It just doesn't happen. Now, that was his description. Uh, he could probably claim, I didn't get a good look at him or whatever. But I personally think that they targeted this brother because of the previous interaction. And they said, once a black man is guilty, always he's guilty. He's up to no good. Let's pursue him. The law is going to back us up. We got all of this other evidence that we can that we can claim, you know, that the other trespassing or whatever, and let's do this. Now, one of the things that I did do, I looked at a diagram of the community, and it's not clear to me which way uh, Travis was running, but I do know that the street, Satilla Drive, is a dead-end street. It's a cul-de-sac. So if he was running deep into the community, there was no way out going in that direction. It actually runs into uh, some uh, body of water. And, but maybe there was another street that he was planning when, when, he, when he veered around. And see, the, 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 the case in my, in my mind, unless they can get, unless they can flip William Bryan and get other video from him that shows the entire chase, then it may be difficult for a jury to, you know, say, you know, this is not, it, you, you were definitely, it was definitely felony stalking. But then again, you know, white supremacy is, is going is, is, is gonna to be the uh, deciding factor in that case. But, you know, so, I mean, I don't know which way, which way he was running, but if they could get, if there's other video that shows the entire, which that means William Brown would have to in, in, indict himself because, Greg McMichael said that that uh, William Bryan or Roddy tried to block or blocked him successfully, blocked Ahmad in to keep him from escaping the neighborhood. So the neighborhood was a cul-de-sac neighborhood. I mean, there may have been some side streets that he could have gone in to get back out to the main highway. Uh, Any way you look at it, it's just a tragic situation. But I know we 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 done a lot of discussion, but there are a couple other things I want to want to get to. One of the things is that how the uh, 13th Amendment uh, continues to work in the favor of the capitalist class in the United States and against uh, particularly black laborers and black people. Striking New Orleans sanitation workers are fired and replaced by prison labor. The workers say they were fired for demanding one proper PPE to all of the workers immediately and consistently, that's personal protection equipment, and on a daily basis, hazardous pay due to the pandemic of COVID-19, their broken trucks be fixed. They say these trucks were leaking all kinds of fluids, but they have to breathe all day long. Apparently they work about 12 hour days on 4.30 in the morning to 4.30 in the evening. These are primarily black workers, sanitation workers in New Orleans, and an increased hourly rate up to $15 an hour for from $10.25 an hour. So these brothers went on strike because they were they 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 were still they were going out working. They didn't feel like they had proper equipment of protection, you know, in the midst of this virus. And they had these other issues. They went on strike, they were fired. They were replaced by prison inmates who per the law in Louisiana have to only be paid 13% of what the garbage workers were making, which comes to about a dollar and 33 cent per hour. Mm -hmm. So here we have a situation once again, I mean, this is this, you know, like the situation with Dr. King and the sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, where the 13th amendment is adequately used to, uh, you know, to, to protect the capitalist class. And so, so they, so they, so they now have prison, prison laborers doing the work that some black laborers were doing, and they claim <laughs> they, they must think everybody's just absolutely, totally ignorant. They said, "Well, one of the things that we're trying to do is prepare these people for reentry, and working these jobs will help them get prepared for reentry." So it just, it just reminded me of. Uh, Dr. King's speech in Memphis from March 18th 
1968, where he said in a speech, uh, you know, to the uh, sanitation workers and to the people who were engaged in the struggle there in Memphis, you are doing many things here in this struggle. You are demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor. So often we overlook the work and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not engaged in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight that wherever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity, it has worth. One day our society, obviously this is a, this is a, a hope, one day our society must come to see this. One day our society will respect the sanitation worker. Maybe, yeah, maybe if we have a, a revolution, maybe it might, if it is to, to survive. For the person who picks up our garbage in the final analysis is significant as the physician, for if he doesn't do his job, diseases are rampant. All labor has dignity. That was from Dr. King's speech title, all, all labor has dignity. Here, once again, we have sanitation workers, brothers who are barely making a livable wage, uh, going on strike because they uh, feared for their safety doing these jobs without uh, the proper protection and they're working for low wages. I, I, it'll be interesting to see how many of them may have already been exposed to the coronavirus and the capitalist class responds by using the 13th amendment to replace these uh, honest laborers, brothers just out trying to make a living at 10, 25 an hour. And they've been replaced by prison inmates who are being paid a dollar and 33 cents per hour. Any comments, gentlemen? Well, it's just typical of uh, capitalism. You talk about a concept like humanism that basically goes out of the window as it relates to unfettered capitalism. You had prison laborers, you know, who were working for paltry wages at best, attempting to put out the fires out in California. So it's par for the course as it relates to unfettered capitalism and the devaluing of all life. And we cannot expect poor whites to grasp that concept. <laughs> yeah, well, we, 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 we saw what happened. We saw what happened to that during the populist movement, right? Uh, one, yeah, one other thing. In Roanoke, Virginia, white man kills black woman in a felony hit and run. This, this killer was sentenced on May 11th and will be released in four months. The privileges of white criminals in the U.S. law enforcement system. The Taney syndrome, African people have no rights in life or death. On February 13, 2019, 58-year-old Linda Pearson was found lying on a sidewalk. Police said she had been crossing the street when she was hit by a vehicle that fled the scene. Three months later, Roanoke police arrested 59-year-old Jean Gallimore. Gallimore pleaded guilty to felony hit and run in the resulting death on May 11th. Okay, so this is May 11th this year, he pleaded uh, guilty to felony hit and run in Roanoke County Circuit Court. He was sentenced to three years in prison with a suspension of one year, six months. Gallimore also gets credit for time served, so he will be released in about four months and will be on probation for a year. A misdemeanor charge of driving without a license was dropped. Damn. Was dropped. Felony hit and run. 58-year-old sister crossing the street, killed, killed. The white man will be out of jail in time to vote for Donald Trump. What can you say, gentlemen? I think you said it all, brother. 1857, Roger B. Taney. The black man has no rights that the white man is bound to respect. 
in life or death. In life or death. That's my addendum to the damn slave owner, Roger Tawney. Uh-huh. Almost you got anything, brother? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I know we're running short on time, but beginning to see some resistance on the African continent around COVID-19. This week, a couple of news sources reported that the president of Madagascar is asking other African countries to join Madagascar in quitting the World Health Organization. Amit, the, the warnings that the World Health Organization has given in regards to the cold organics tonic that Madagascar has developed uh, as what they call a cure to prevention for COVID-19. Now, Madagascar has a large black population, but much of the government is ran by Indo-Asian people, uh, including the president himself. Uh, but to the credit of Madagascar, they have been sending out this COVID organics tonic to other African countries, uh, in some cases free of charge, to help fight the coronavirus. And one of the things that the president stated this past week was that would the World Health Organization be challenging another cure like this if it came from a European country? Or would they accept it and start to actually run tests on it without the same type of scrutiny? So I don't know if, I don't know what other African countries are gonna do in regards to this information there is an agenda by the World Health Organization to promote a vaccine over a preventative herb or even a preventative drug. Mm -hmm. Because of the amount of money that can be made through the controlling and operating of a vaccine worldwide which more than likely will come from the U.S., being that they've been doing the research here under Fauci for the last five years. They've been preparing for this quote-unquote pandemic. Right. So it'll be interesting to see how other African leaders respond to this. We know that a lot of other African leaders are still controlled by European countries, and it'll be interesting also to see how other African countries um, stand with Madagascar or how these other European countries start to attack Madagascar and the president for what's going on with this coronavirus. Because if a lot of these other African countries pull out a World Health Organization, and don't accept the vaccine, which we know they want Africa to be the number one target for the vaccine. Right. Then that could throw a huge monkey wrench in the plans of these um, elite people around the world. And it also could cost them billions of dollars and lost money over people not taking the vaccine. Very, yeah, you know, absolutely. Here's the the thing of it is this is this is what's interesting. You know, Trump Trump jumped out there and made this uh, you know statement without with no with with without any type of scientific data, telling people that uh, hydroxychloroquine would work. Okay, I mean it's so absurd. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's asinine. And uh, it's, a, it's an imbecilic incantation. I, I don't know what else I can think of to, to describe it, but people actually tried it and then it, it resulted in heart issues for some of the people. So what's wrong with trying? What's wrong with testing 
the uh, the tonic that 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 they developed in Madagascar. They they know that it helps with malaria. They already know this, and so they may be ticked off almost because Africans have been using have already been using this to fight malaria instead of using what the Europeans wanted them to use the hydroxy uh, chloroquine. So, you know, that that could be the case. That that could be the case. But I mean, just based on pure logic, what's wrong with trying that? What's wrong with trying the medicine that Cuba has developed? Right. What's wrong with it? The only thing that's wrong with it is the same thing we see with the sanitation workers making 10 25 an hour being replaced by prison labor making a dollar and 33 cent an hour what's wrong with it is that it kills the their profit their, their, their great expectations of enormous profits because exactly. you, you know because you know naomi klein talked about disaster capitalism how 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 they use disasters to make enormous profits. And so that's that that would be the reason, you know, why they why did you single this out? Why, why did you single this particular drug out? Because it was created, you know, by you know, a country that's, you know, Mad Mad Madagascar is not on the African continent. It's obviously what the largest island in the world, but it was originally totally populated by African people before these uh, Asians, you know, migrated over there. But nevertheless, the, uh, the, the president of the country and the people in the country seem to identify more with African people than with, you know, unlike the people in the North of Africa who identify more with Arabs. So the only thing that's wrong with trying it is it kills the profit motive. It, ki it kills the expectations. Not only that, you can put anything in a vaccine. <laughs> right. Africa, you can put anything in a vaccine and, and you, you, you can give Europeans one vaccine, Asians one vaccine, Americans one vaccine, and you can give Af Africans a vaccine that's going to make them sterile or, or, or that maybe uh, explodes, uh, you know, in, in 10, 15 years that causes all kinds of deaths. I mean, and see, this is, you know, we, we are seeing they they developed a plethora of vaccines for Ebola and tested them on hundreds of thousands of Africans, particularly Africans in the Congo. And we see now a lot of people with all types of illnesses that result that have resulted, you know, there, there are cases where the vaccine kills more people than the virus itself. So exactly. look, man, what at what point do we look at our entire history and say, no, hell no. We ain't doing it. I mean, at what at, at what point do we make that decision? All right. So 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 our broadcast will be published on May the 18th. On May 19th, we will be celebrating 95 years of Baba Omawali Malcolm X. He was born May 19th, 1925. So the Malcolm X Liberation, the Malcolm X Commemoration Committee, huh? almost said Malcolm X Liberation University, uh, the Malcolm X Commem Commemoration Committee, which is led by Baba Zaid Muhammad, who we saw in the, um, in the uh, Who Killed Malcolm X uh, docuseries. On Tuesday, May 19, 2020, observing the 95th anniversary of his birth, joined the Malcolm X Commemoration Committee, the Organization of Afro-American Unity and the Sons of Africa for a a uh, special Facebook live event. Malcolm X speaks in the 21st century beyond COVID-19 and the chickens coming home to roost. From 7 to 9.30 on Facebook Live at the Malcolm X Commemoration Committee. We have this link already set up on our page for anybody. And I, I, I sent an email out to, uh, you know, about 200 people. Special guest, the daughter of Malcolm X, Ilyasa Sabaz, Roundtable participants include Professor Jane Small, Professor Bill Sales, Viola Plummer, Viola Plummer, a heroic sister 
who used to fund us when uh, I was a student at Malcolm X Liberation University. I'm glad to see this, this heroic sister still struggling. Herb Boyd, Baba Zach Kondo, Professor Todd Stephen Burris, Professor Al, Comrade Kelly Harris, and others will join uh, Baba Zaid Muhammad uh, on this Facebook Live. So that will be May 19, 2020, from 7 to 9.30 on Facebook Live. So uh, let's, uh, let's everybody uh, join together on that day. First thing in the morning when you get up, pour a libation on that morning. I do it every morning, but pour a libation that morning for uh, Baba Omawali Malcolm X on his, 90, his 95th Earth Day, having had this brother on the planet for 39 years. You know, how, 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 how great a contribution he made to us in our struggle. So uh, let's everybody for join us and participate in this and, uh, you know, make this a great event. Simple statement, uh, interesting article in uh, the Washington Post by brother Eugene Robinson. He writes how dysfunctional the U.S. is. Uh, the title of the article is the U.S. is a country to be pitied. It's after liberation media, a BB for ODA. BB for ODA. BB for ODA. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the buffing up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.